Hello and welcome to the Truth For Doubt discussion series. I'm your host, Michael Badger, and this week we're joined by Jay Warner Wallace. Wallace was a former homicide detective, a reoccurring guest on Dateline, and he is an adjunct professor at Biola University and author of Cold Case Christianity. He joins us to explain how his investigation into the claims of the Bible and the person of Jesus led him to put his faith in Christ. Wallace then explains how we can use his investigative methods to strengthen our own belief in God as well as have conversations with unbelievers. If you want to learn more about J. Warner Wallace, visit coldcasechristianity.com. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. All right. Well, hey, thanks again so much for for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, of course. Good to be here. All right. Well, so for those of you who who may not know you, can you just give us a little bit about your background, how you got into apologetics and and all of that kind of stuff? Well, um, you know, I wasn't really intending to to get into apologetics. That was not my goal to to, to be an apologist. And that word always bothered me anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the way I became a Christian ended up informing the process that I took then with people um, to help them, and especially when I was a youth pastor. I had a lot of young, young uh, people in my ministry. And for the most part, um, I, I found that they wanted to know why this was true. Uh, yeah. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the young Christians, we graduated uh, out of youth ministry, and I, I, I was not a Christian myself until I was 35, so I kind of had an understanding of this, where I could see why you would maybe reject the claims altogether, or maybe have your doubts about the claims altogether, so so I really had a sense of, I could understand where they were coming from, these students then, who are now 17, 18 years old, they go to university, and in the first year they're in university, Either they uh, encountered the resistance they weren't expecting, or they really had kind of decided maybe a couple of years earlier that this wasn't true, but they continued to go to uh, church with their with their parents. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now we're in a position where they had the freedom to walk away from the church uh, at large, and so they would do that. And I thought, wow, you know, if I had just helped them to see what I looked at, what I examined, uh, as a new believer, they might have uh, been in a position where they would have uh, resisted the temptation to walk away because they would have known not just what the Bible teaches, but um, why we believe this is what the Bible teaches. And I didn't spend a lot of time that first year as a youth pastor doing that with them. You know, I worked as a cold case homicide detective and I was working in Los Angeles County and was really just bivocational as a youth pastor, and I was trying to figure out, you know, how to do this, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I made a lot of mistakes that first year, but I found as I just returned to my 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 lane, returned to the process that, that helped me to discover Jesus, I, I could help students to do the same thing, and that's really how I ended up. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were training students uh, in the reliability of Scripture, and I was with Sean McDowell training a group of high school students in oh. the University of Berkeley. We had taken them up there for a missions trip, and, and sure enough, he looked at me and said, hey, why don't you just write a book about this? And that's ultimately what became Cold Case Christianity. So a lot of what we did really was birthed out of our experience, my experience as a youth pastor. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you you kind of touched on it briefly. You have a, a very unique coming to uh, Christ experience, it sounds like. So can you touch on that a little bit, how you uh, how you personally came to Christ and put your faith in Christ and how your uh, background as a detective kind of played a role in that? Yeah, I wasn't uh, raised in the church, um, didn't have any Christians who, and didn't own a Bible. Um, and I was uh, about with my wife, maybe about 18 years we've been together and we were having kids and we had kids uh, who were like um, elementary school age, you know, early elementary. And uh, Susie was, even as they were uh, younger than that, preschool age, she kind of wondered, you know, should we raise she still had this idea that traditional families, good families, they go to church, right? Sure. And 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 she was raised as more or less a, a cultural Catholic um, oh, by okay. her mom. And so she had an experience in which she at least had some, she knew who Jesus was, at least by, uh, by name, even though if I asked her serious questions or pushed back, I don't think she would have felt equipped to even respond to my objections. Um, but she did have a sense that maybe we should do this as a family, right? So she said, what, what are you thinking? And I was more than happy to appease her uh, in the sense that if she felt like this would help us be good parents, um, even though I disagreed with it, I would never have, have contradicted her um, approach on this in front of my kids. And I was more mm -hmm. than willing to go to church um, as a non-believer. But when I got into church, I, I realized that these gospels in the New Testament we're uh, making outrageous claims that the authors really wanted us to embrace as true. And that's where I thought, okay, that's different, right? I mean, this is not just about moral teaching like Proverbs. This is about a series of claims that these authors want me to believe are rooted in the first century, right? Are rooted in, in antiquity. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to really assess them to see if they are true. Now, that's something I do for a living as I look at people's claims from 40 years ago and try to figure out what really happened. And is there a suspect who I can identify from mm -hmm. these this collection of early claims? And so what I'm doing here is kind of the same thing. You know, I'm using the same process. So that's what I did. Uh, and that's how I got at least to the point where. I had deconstructed all the walls I had built up. And a lot of times, you know, that's what we're doing. It's it's not that 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 I'm trying to argue someone into the kingdom. It's not mm -hmm. that that I'm under the impression that I'm smart enough to figure this out on my own. I, I realize that uh, I'm really in a position to resist what the Holy Spirit does. Mm -hmm. And at some point, um, and I think God gives us the freedom um, to make this, these kinds of bad decisions. You see people making bad decisions all the time about all kinds of things. And I think that God gives us that freedom so that when our, our, our focus is turned toward him, it's genuine because mm -hmm. it's it's and this is what had to happen for me. I had to deconstruct all the barriers that I had built between myself and the gospel message. And that's really what this form of case making did for me. Uh, it brought me to a point that I could read the scriptures and the words leapt out from the page for me. And yeah. I started to see myself on the pages of Scripture when Paul described our fallen nature. Mm -hmm. I recognized myself in those descriptions. That would never have happened for me if I hadn't first knocked down some of the barriers that stood between me and those descriptions. And that's what I think a lot of times we're doing when we are um, making a case like this or examining the evidence. And by the way, this seems to be to be very consistent with the Jesus of Nazareth on the pages of the New Testament, who consistently used evidence to mm -hmm. make his case. 
he would often say, if you don't believe me, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I just worked in front of you. You you heal and then you herald. Why you do it in that order? Because after I've shown you my power, you recognize my authority. And it uh, basically, the miracles of the New Testament authenticated the message of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he spends 40 days after the resurrection with the disciples in Acts 1, giving them many additional convincing proofs. Like, you really need that after the resurrection? <laughs> right. the, the commitment to evidence that Jesus has uh, for those of us who, who need to have that to take a step mm -hmm. with him. So I felt like that was within the tradition of Christianity for me to take that approach. And that's what I try to start doing with all the students in my ministry. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's a far cry from this uh, kind of fideistic, blind faith that a lot of people think that Christians have. Uh, so yeah. what did that process look like for you, breaking down those barriers of using your uh, your expertise and in, in examining the facts of, of the New Testament? And are there principles that um, that younger Christians or, or even people who've been Christians for 30 years can take away from that? Yeah, I think there are. Um, I think that, for example, a lot of what historians do is similar to what cold case detectives do. Uh, I think that the, the advantage we have sometimes as cold case detectives is that we get to do this uh, repeatedly and then test the process in front of a jury to see if the process really uh, provides um, something valuable, provides a conclusion, uh, proper inferences can be made from the use of evidence in certain ways. And so we get, a, we get to basically run a laboratory for historical discovery uh, every time we do a criminal trial in, in the United States. So, so that's what we, I try to apply those steps, right? So when it comes to reliability of the eyewitnesses, we know that jurors are going to be challenged on that issue because if nothing else, if we have a really good eyewitness, the defense team is going to try to come in and discredit that witness in some way and convince the jury that that witness should not be trusted. Mm -hmm. So we establish a framework for jurors so they can assess eyewitnesses. And that framework is the framework that I used to assess the eyewitness accounts in the New Testament. So it really comes down to uh, were they written early enough? If a witness is, is, is not really there to see what they're saying they saw, well, then of course they're discredited. And often you'll see that um, defense attorneys will do this, where they'll try to, you know, if they think that they can demonstrate to the jury that this guy wasn't even in the area to see this, or he wasn't in the right angle to see this, or you have to be in a position where you can actually see what you're reporting. And, and so that's important for the New Testament Gospels. And that really comes down to, were they written early enough? Mm -hmm. So that the authors could really have lived alongside of Jesus to see what they're say they, they they saw. And also that would help us because if you want to lie about Jesus, the best thing you can do is just wait until everyone who knew him is dead. Or wait till that period of time you're reporting on has passed and there's no one alive who could tell you that you're telling a lie. Write this thing in the second century. Write this thing so late in the first century that there's no way to test it. But if it's written within a couple of decades of the actual events, well, that's really the, like my work, right? I will sometimes find eyewitnesses that were maybe not discovered at the time of the crime. And now I find them 25 years later. How would we know if they're telling us the truth? How would we be able to assess their, well, first of all, we have to place them at the scene. And I think that's the first thing I'm trying to do is mm -hmm. to see how early these gospels date. Number two, uh, they have to be corroborated in some way. And corroborative evidence is really, there's like a, a, a number of different ways you can corroborate an eyewitness's claim. Another eyewitness 
will help you corroborate it. But also, you know, um, if I tell somebody that I saw the suspect jump over the counter, well, then I ought to be able to find his palm print on the counter where the eyewitness says he jumped over. But mm -hmm. even if I found the palm print, it's not going to tell me much about what the guy's wearing or how big he was. Well, why? Because you only get a touch point piece of corroboration from any particular piece of corroborative evidence. So are there any touch point snapshots, fractions of corroboration that are available to us? Because that's what happens in every case. You don't get a video. I mean, this, mm -hmm. These days you might have a video, but certainly that's not true for my cases in the 70s and 80s. Well, it's not true for the Old Testament and New Testament either. We've got to see is there touch point corroboration, and that comes in a variety of forms. Third thing. Um, has the author or has the witness changed their story over time? Have they been honest and accurate? And have they changed their story to demonstrate they aren't honest or accurate? And so that's something I wanted to do, too, is to see if the earliest stories about Jesus had been changed over the course of history. That, of course, would, would you know, is there a legend that grew about Jesus so that who we think Jesus is today as the Christ of Christianity is something other than what really existed in Jesus of Nazareth? So we need to be able to see that. And then finally, does the writer or does the witness have a reason to lie to me? I want to examine all of those. By the way, defense attorneys will usually just camp right here at this issue. They'll mm -hmm. try to demonstrate why this witness is unreliable based on his motives or bias or presuppositions. So I need to look at that also on the part of the authors. And to be honest, that only comes down to three things. There's only three reasons why anyone's going to lie on the stand. There's only three reasons why anyone's going to commit a theft or a murder or any crime or any sin you've ever committed. Only three things drive bad behavior, and that is financial gain, um, sexual lust, relationships often, and then finally the pursuit of power, which is a very big umbrella. Anytime you think... You, your race, for example, we have big shootings in the last week. What's driving these kinds of shootings? The, the notion that my race is somehow better than everybody else's, that's an authority, power, respect, pride issue. And it's those kinds of things, even if there's no money in it for this guy and there's no sex in it for this guy, if there's a chance for fame, power, or I can flex my authority or position, that is the third category. And that's what we often see in lies as well. So I could actually examine the gospel authors and ask the simple question, did they have anything to gain in one of those three areas? So that's the process that I went through to mm -hmm. examine the claims of scripture. And now in the, I wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, where I'm really just talking about 10 tools that I use to do those four things, okay? But in the end, those are the four things that we do yeah. in criminal trials to demonstrate that a witness is reliable. Wow. Wow. So what was what was your mindset as you're going through these different things, as your opinions um, were changing, as as well, you were examining early, all this stuff? Yeah. Even early on, I will tell you that I saw value in it, even though I mm -hmm. didn't believe it. Um, so early on, as I'm starting through this and I'm reading through the gospel accounts, I saw value in just kind of mining out the red letters of Jesus, the, the wisdom of Jesus even though I would have at first rejected uh, that really, because, you know, it doesn't, does it really matter if I read Confucius or if I read Buddha or if I read Baha'u'llah, mm -hmm. if I read, uh, you know, uh, what's the prophet, the, the book by, uh, is it Kalal, um, I forget his name now, who wrote, that, wrote the prophet. But the idea is, does it really need to be true in order to be valuable to us? Sometimes, you know, things can be, uh, ancient wisdom 
can be passed down through through different cultures, mm-hmm. and then it appears on the coming out of the lips of, of a fictional character. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think the ancient wisdom could still be valuable to me, even though I might know that the character is fictional. Mm-hmm. So, so I was willing, and I at first was very comfortable just you know reading the Sermon on the Mount and seeing well what's his position on it. I could see how this view broadly held could shape Western civilization. Those kinds of things were. Um, valuable to me, even though I, I didn't think they had to be true in order to be valuable. But uh, I also knew as I was testing these accounts that there were attributes and textures of the accounts that were disturbing for me as somebody who rejected them as historically accurate. Mm-hmm. So there were some things that I thought, yes, and I've written a little bit about that in Cold Case. I'm writing another book right now where we're just talking about some of the things that separate Jesus on paper from other uh, myths uh, religions, uh, mythological characters that preceded Jesus. There are differences, and um, the, the texture of these accounts really provoked me because mm-hmm. I didn't expect them. I really was expecting more like Proverbs, like a Gospel of Thomas kind of view of Jesus. Right, it's right. not really a, a historical connection. Then he went here, and then he saw this woman, then he went there. No, Gospel of Thomas is kind of like the wisdom statements of Jesus just kind of banged together, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I was expecting. And that's where I took a step in, the, uh, in a direction where I decided to test them. When I first started, I don't think I really had any expectation of testing them. Uh, I didn't think there would be um, anything worth testing. You know, it's kind of like if someone said to you, I've got the wisdom statements of Santa Claus. Uh, <laughs> you might say, well, let's just see what people think Santa Claus says. But it's not like you're going to spend a lot of time testing the Santa Claus story. So this is a little bit different. Once I got to this point, I said, oh, you know what? These these have a texture that I think is worth testing. And what I basically mean by that is I saw things when comparing the gospel accounts, because they don't match. I mean, in some ways, you might think they don't match very well at all in certain places. And they match a little better in others. And then in other places, you're like scratching your head as to how two people could report it so differently. But that is exactly what I see in eyewitness accounts of any event, even in the last, if it happens three hours ago. And I isolate. That's why the first thing that detectives do when we get the call that we've got a murder is we ask the dispatcher to have the responding officers separate the eyewitnesses. I don't ask for anything else because I know in the end, if I don't separate those eyewitnesses, I'm going to get one account five times. I want five slightly different accounts because no one's telling me a lie. No one's, you know, they're not conspiring to, to lie to me. That They just are, are giving me their perspective on the crime scene. And people focus on different things for different reasons. The uh, gospel authors do something similar. And as I looked at that, and that, by the way, that is not something I can, I can give you a statistical accounting of. I can't say, well, yes, when they vary, when this many words are different. No, this is something you just get used to over time. And, and you, if you read enough counts, and I open a lot of cases where uh, four different detectives have interviewed four different witnesses on the same crime, that's not unusual, especially if we're canvassing a neighborhood for eyewitnesses. We might have several different detectives who are interviewing several different witnesses. And every detective has got a different skill level in terms of his ability to interview. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sadly, that's what shapes an interview. Um, sometimes uh, people don't ask a lot of follow-up questions. They just want to get this thing done because they want to go ask the ne- talk to the next witness. We see this in, in criminal trials. And so you'll see that you'll get a very broad variety of, and, and we can clean it up sometimes because we can go back and we can re-interview eyewitnesses. But if I can't go back and re-interview an eyewitness, I'm kind of stuck with the supplemental report the detective wrote 
That's what happens to Gospels. You know, I could probably remove all of the apparent contradictions if I simply have had access to the original eyewitnesses and could say, hey, what did you mean by this? And then they explain, I go, oh, okay, now it matches. Okay, got it. Thank you. You know, off to the next thing. I just can't go back and make those, uh, ask those kinds of secondary questions. So you end up having to um, assess them in a different way. And that's what we try to do in that, that first book, Cold Case. Yeah, that's wonderful because I think uh, a lot of the conversations that I've had with unbelievers, they use that, um, the, the differences in the Gospels as evidence against the reliability right. of the New Testament. And so it's it's so helpful to hear that it's actually, it's a help, yeah, it's, it's a boom, it. it's a, yeah, it's yeah. for it. And that's that's wonderful. And especially coming uh, from somebody like you who who knows what he's talking about and knows his stuff. Well, and a lot of this, you know, a lot of this is something that might seem um, intuitive. It might seem, mm-hmm. um, but but I think it, 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 this is one, if, if all I could do in that first book is just offer that simple distinction this idea that um, you shouldn't expect these to line up. And that, by the way, if you wrote, honestly, look at, look at all your skeptical friends. Do you think for a second that if they had four identical eyewitness accounts, they would suddenly be over it? No, of course not. Now they're going to really scream collusion, right? I mean, we yeah. would expect, I mean, think about this for a second. Um, sometimes people will try to say, just from textual analysis, textual criticism, they'll say, oh, Isaiah could not have been written by one person. There's more than one author of Isaiah. Oh, there's more. There's four authors of the Pentateuch, uh, books of Moses. It's 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 this priestly, or it's all just different authors. Be careful how much you think you can draw just from textual criticism. And mm-hmm. and I what I see is if any document has been written a long time ago under different technology and over a period of time, I start to see the same thing that the textual critics will complain about. So for example. Um, if I get a case that wasn't unusual back in 1970, if you had a case that you couldn't solve in the first year, you might work that for the next three years. And you were doing it as a collateral duty while you also had uh, new cases, fresh cases that were uh, popping up. So that meant you wouldn't come back to it for a month and you get back at it again. And, and what we would do back in those days is we would have what we called a running supplemental which meant that we would have an open document and there was no word or or Microsoft back then. So we would often record this on a Mm -hmm. digital, uh, not digital, on a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. And then our secretary would listen to it with a little foot control and she would type it in. And by the way, depending on the secretary, we had no problem with them editing. So when you speak into a recorder, you know, you have to kind of edit it, right? Because if sure. you don't, it's not gonna, it's gonna sound like you're speaking instead of like you're writing. And we just get, and so that meant that if you were to look, so on this day I, I type in this and she types that up. The next two weeks later I type in something. Over the course of three years, I've seen a detective become a better writer. And by the third year, maybe he's just taking that one, he's typing into it. Then the mm-hmm. fourth year is back on that. So now if you were to look at that long document, you would say there's gotta be like six different authors. Because in some places it seems linguistically different because you had a different steno who was typing it in from your audio recording. Or you might say he just seems like he's more articulate over here than he was over here. It can't be the same guy. Keep in mind, it's going to come down to how long did it take to write that document? It was written over a period of years. Two, who is it who's actually penning the words? Are you using a scribe? Are you using a steno? Technology and time impact the way a document looks at the end. I've got several of these that are like maybe 40, 50 pages long, that if you look at them, 
you would swear, and I have the original documents, there are places where the font looks different, like the typewriter is different. You would say, there's no way this is one author. So I think you have to be careful to assume too much just from uh, an analysis of word usage or of other, uh, or of, of a syntax or of other forms of language. Because mm -hmm. if I'm working with a different scribe who has more liberty maybe to make me sound better as I'm reciting to him, uh, I would expect to see some differences uh, from chapter to chapter based nothing more than what kinds of scribes I'm using. So I'm always careful not to assume too much. Right. Well, as as being a detective, um, you have a I'm sure you have a certain level of respect for uh, for the scientific method in science. Uh, so how do you go against or how do you answer the claim that science is kind of proven the Bible to be false or or it's kind of shown that all these miracles and all this frou-frou stuff going on within the Gospels or even within the Old Testament is just impossible? How would you answer that? Well, when we use science, and, and it, we do use a form of science when we do historical in investigations, it's a forensic science, right? So we do have a way and manners in which to compare the world around us using a number of scientific tools with the claims made by anybody who's describing an event in the world around us. So I think that we can use some scientific tools of corroboration. But when it comes down to claims about miracles, that is something that's going to be very, very hard to test. I mean, you're talking about a, an act or an action that violates the laws of nature as we think of them, right? The same way that I can violate the law of nature, let's say, on, on this case, as I drop it, the gravity, natural forces are going to drag it down to the desk, right? Are going to pull it to the desk. I, though, have the ability to step in and stop that by intervening and stopping the laws, the natural forces of gravity, if I can do it, I think that the, the being that actually is responsible and these laws are simply a reflection of his very nature, though that being I think could intervene. But here's the problem. Do you have a mindset that would allow for even the existence of anything outside of natural causes, natural explanations, natural forces? In other words, if you think that the only thing that governs the universe is space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, and you will not accept as an explanation for any event, anything outside of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, well, then I can understand why you would have problems with the Gospels. As a matter of fact, I was talking about this recently, and, and if we were to eliminate all um, miraculous storytelling, all miraculous uh, events, from either the Old or New Testament, no parting of the Red Sea, no miracles in the Old Testament, no resurrection in the New Testament. I don't think many people would um, would argue about or would doubt the historicity of either uh, canon, a new or old. Uh, I think the I, we are te what, what do we have a problem with is when you insert that yeah there were Jews in Egypt that migrated out of Egypt. Oh yeah, but they migrated because God intervened and part of the Red Sea. All this miraculous stuff happened. Now suddenly people are actually focused on this and want to disprove it because they have no confidence that anything that could report a supernatural event could be reliable. So I think what it comes down to is not so much is the document reliable and how could we test that, but instead it's about do we hold a presupposition against the miraculous mm -hmm. that would prevent us from ever landing there. And I think after the Enlightenment, we see that science changed. I mean, think about how science was done 
uh, with Newton, with uh, with with I mean Kepler, with, with a number of scientists prior to the Enlightenment, would say that science asks important questions: who, what, when, where, how, why. Suddenly, though, in the uh, um, after the Enlightenment, we've removed the who question. You you could look at the what, why, when, how, where. You could ask all those questions. But if, even if the evidence, like the information in DNA, points most reasonably to a who, because we can't get information from anything other than mind, we've got no experience ever in the history of the universe of getting information from anything other than mind. So now we've got evidence in the scene that points to a who. And the only reason why we don't go there is because we've decided in advance that we are going to eliminate who questions. Why? Because we don't believe in supernatural. It's got to be explained the other way with just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. So you can ask what, why, when, how, where, but you can't ask who. Now, that's a decision we make in advance of doing science that is really displays our bias. I'm not going to rush to a who when a what can explain it. I'm not going to be inclined as a Christian believer to say, oh, I can't understand this, therefore God did it. But if I've got evidence, so for example... If I walk into a crime scene and there's blood spatter on the wall, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, I mean, this person's got a cut on their head and, and it could have tripped and there's blood spatter when he finally hits the ground. He, blood spatter is on the wall. I'm not going to assume this is necessarily a murder at this point. But if on the wall I've got written in this guy's blood, he deserved it. That's different. OK, because now. I've got good reason to believe that that language and information on the wall is not the consequence of physics and his head hitting the ground and blood spattering against the wall. This actually points to a who. That's a reasonable inference. I mean, I think if we were walking in that, that crime scene and we saw the written statement on the wall, we would say, hey, this is a murder. We need to find out who wrote that. Why is that reasonable? And by the way, if we said no, there are no who's, we cannot ask a who, it has to be a what, I have to explain that language with just physics and chemistry acting on space, time, and matter. How stupid is that? So I think at some point it's reasonable for us doing science to at least recognize that we have limited ourselves in this generation by removing the option of asking who questions. Could we still do science and ask who questions? Yes, we could. And there are many Christians who are doing science today who are doing great work in biochemistry and all kinds of astrophysics, but they are just open to when the evidence points to a who of being able to say, hey, I think the best explanation from the evidence here is a who. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So with all the different arguments that are going against Christianity and in the, uh, I guess you could even call it political turmoil going on right now in the United States. What do you think is the biggest issue facing the Christian church today, and specifically in the U.S.? And how do you think that how, how do you think we as Christians can correctly respond to those those issues or that issue? If you had to narrow it down to one, oh boy. Uh, so I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one, right? Yeah, it, it, it all comes down to sexual sin. Sometimes most things come down sure. to, to, to money, sex, power. It's those three things, right? So right. so when it comes down to what is going to challenge us as a culture, it's going to be in those three areas: money, sex, or power. And at any one given time, it might be the sex issue, or the money issue, or the power issue mm -hmm. that comes up and stands between us and the clearest instruction of God. So I think you can pick your your poison here. It, it, it depends on what your what day we're looking at the news, I guess, right? But I will tell you this, uh, I don't focus on, if you look at my, my social media platform, if you look at the kinds of things I write about on my website, you'll see I say very little about those kinds of issues, because I think they're all downstream 
of a much more important issue. And here it is. It's it, it, we, I could spend a lot of time making. I think we lost you there for a second. In a case about. Oh, there we go. I think you froze up a little bit. No Sorry, problem. we lost you downstream. Yeah, so it's all going to be downstream from a couple of from one more important topic that I write about a lot, and that is: Is the Bible reliable? Is it true? And should we take it seriously? Why do we disagree broadly across culture about you name whatever your hot topic is today? I don't care what it is. If it's if it's sex, if it's if it's uh, abortion, if it's uh, if it's gender identity, if it's uh, uh, feeding the poor or homelessness, whatever the issue is, you think that we are divided on, if it's global warming, I don't care what it is. If we would not be in such a position of division if we all thought the Bible was teaching something that's true and reliable and we took it seriously. Why don't we agree? Well, because I might hold a biblical worldview, but the person I'm talking to doesn't, doesn't think it's true or reliable. Or the person is a, 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 a Christian or, or at least identifies as a Christian, but doesn't take the Bible seriously enough to not cherry pick a verse out to try to craft or redact or modify the words of Jesus, to modify the words of Scripture so that it fits the context, so that it, it provides the thing they want. In other words, we all, some people do this, right? We all have a tendency to do that. We have to kind of watch ourselves to make sure we don't do that. So it's going to come down to, is the Bible true? And do you take it seriously enough to want to know what is the, the, the breadth of teaching on any one of these topics? You know, what does it mean if you say, well, I hear all the time people will say, well, Jesus never said anything about that issue, whatever that issue is. Well, you realize that Jesus never said anything about rape either, but it doesn't mean there's no view about rape that he affirmed because he said, actually, I have spoken about all these issues because I didn't come here to change scripture. To, 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 I didn't come here to nullify the work of the Old Testament. I came here to embody that, to, to fulfill Moses and the prophets. So if you've got a question about what you think I, I believe about something, or you think God says about something, go back to Moses. Go back to the prophets. You'll figure out what we what we believe because we didn't come here to change that. And, and so in the end, if anyone who changes the least of these teachings will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So I think that we already know what Jesus says about this. And, and why would you be surprised for a minute that if you hold a, a, a Jesus view of the world, that you would be wide, uh, widely unpopular, wildly unpopular? You're going to be. He said this. I mean, think about this. This actually happened, okay? When Jesus, uh, you know, saw the crowd, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began teaching them, saying, blessed, right? All the blessings. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are He went through all that list. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and seek for righteousness. Blessed are the peace, uh, the the merciful. The, the 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 blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who um, are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Then he says, "Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute." He doesn't say if people insult you or persecute. He says, "Blessed are you when people insult you." when people persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, that stinks. No, he doesn't say that. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, he says. There's a life beyond this life. He says, in the same way, the prophets were persecuted who were before you. 
Then he talks about being salt and light to the earth, to the world. Now, I think that's important for us to realize that a lot of us will call ourselves Jesus followers when really we're more or less Jesus admirers right. or yeah. we're Jesus modifiers mm -hmm. or we're Jesus redactors. Because to be a Jesus follower means we're now going to have to embrace the teaching of Jesus. And trust me, if you do that, there'll be a when when you're going to be persecuted and insulted and falsely accused of all kinds of things because of him. And that's when we're called to stand tall. So I'm, I'm, I'm over trying to figure out how to navigate and uh, parse out the words of Jesus to be the least offensive Christian I can be. Mm. I don't want to add offense by being a jerk, okay? But I already know that if you do this, uh, you're going to be unpopular. And, and you're going to be falsely accused because of him. Now, there's lots of reasons to be falsely accused. I'm kind of thinking that the best reason to be falsely accused is because of Jesus. So, so let's just get over that and be ready. Yeah, that's a powerful message, but that's that's a message that's desperately needed in our in our Christian culture here in the United States, especially. Uh, so you mentioned that you you've you've written a couple books. Uh, you have a website. Where where can people find you and find your work, and and how can they keep up with you? Uh, so I've written uh, books, but uh, what we really want to do is try to deliver the, the information needed for young people, especially, yeah. uh, to know if Christianity is true. And I think that that's going to have to be delivered quickly online for free. And so mm -hmm. I think we, we try to do that five days a week at coldcasechristianity.com. We've got a phone app that you can download that we really want that to be um, a, a resource that people will use, hopefully, and will answer all their questions. We update that uh, every single day. So that is updated daily, and we answer questions on that phone app. You can get all that at coldcasechristianity.com. And we have a kids course at casemakersacademy.com. And that's a place where kids 8 to 12 can learn to make the case for God's existence and for the reliability of Scripture. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for letting us interview you, and thank you so much for all the amazing work that you're doing for the sake of the gospel. I can't thank you enough. Well, I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Absolutely, absolutely. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Thank you for listening to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. If you want to learn more about the Truth for Doubt ministry, email us anytime at truthfordoubt at gmail.com. That is truthfordoubt at gmail.com. If you would like to learn how you could become a supporter of the Truth for Doubt ministry, send us an email or feel free to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash t4d. That is patreon.com slash t the number 4d. Thank you for listening.